Hello, my name is Carl Schostrom, and this episode is going to be all about levels of pay, so the how much question. Why are people paid the way they are, in particular from the angle of executive compensation? But we will also uh, clearly touch on lots of things that are relevant for, for uh, any employee, how his or her pay is being set. The episode now is a classic podcast. If you're watching this on YouTube, you will not see much more on my face from this point on. But it will be complemented with a second episode on statistics where you do need to watch the illustrations to get it. Uh, the two go a bit hand in hand. You do not need to watch the statistics one. Have all sympathy in the world if you don't. Uh, but if you want to get the sort of completeness of it all, then it's advisable, I think. I think. My opinion. This is all about my opinion. I'm going to provide you with insights into the basics of how this works, um, draw on some uh, experience that I have from my 25 plus years in this business, and I will also bring up some of the things that you would expect remuneration committee, uh, management members, shareholders, and other interested stakeholders to want to consider, to be alert to, if you like. What is it that drives levels of pay? Well, it's one, internal philosophy, policy, and practice. It is the performance and the potential and the past of an individual who receives the pay, is the franchise position, and it's the external market. So let's just have a quick look at those. The internal factors. Well, first is philosophy. And this sounds really grand. You know, it conjures up an image of ancient Greeks standing on the steps of the Parthenon discussing their salary checks. Uh, is not quite that. But it is philosophy just the same. Whether the organization understands it or not, it does have a view on how to pay people. Why we pay people, the way that is good to pay people. We want to recognize certain things and we don't want to recognize certain things. Inevitably, the organization builds up this philosophy. And that philosophy needs to be translated into policy. Policy is really important because the policy is the guidance to your managers that gives them help in making decisions. It, it, it provides assistance in the decision-making by guiding uh, the manager to what is it that the organization wants to achieve with pay. So, for example, if we have a policy of paying base salaries at the median of the market or the middle of the market, then that tells the manager not to pay way over the market or way under the market. The policy guides, but the decision is made separately. And that brings us to the practice of pay. So how we actually do it. We may have a state of philosophy and a state of policy which are not put into practice, or we may have practice that has developed beyond philosophy and policy. So how do we actually deliver salaries? And that may 
be uh, through 12 monthly payments, but it may also be weekly, bi-weekly. It may include 13th, 14th, 15th month payments. It may include allowances for holidays or uh, subtractions for holidays. All these things will build up, which is not necessarily just the philosophy and policy, but is how we do things around this place uh, in practice. And this is very key. And how it all emerges, uh, you can you can look at this uh, illustration uh, if you, if you're watching the, the the YouTube versions of this. This is something that H.K. Brin and I have used in a number of articles that you can find in uh, publications like the Governance, uh, and also they're all actually on LinkedIn. So please do do go and uh, have a look and see if you find this interesting. I think it's a really helpful way of looking at it, and I'll describe to those who are just listening to this podcast. Well, everything in an organization stems and comes back to three parts in particular, and that is the ownership, both past and present, so who set up this organization, and secondly, with what purpose was the organization set up? And with what purpose do we continue to operate the, this business? Why are we in business? And thirdly, the purpose and the ownership has led the organization to merge and to merge in a certain shape. So the organization is now a specific thing, which has its own culture that's merged with it. And this organization, this culture, provides both opportunities, but also limitations in how we can do things. And so we get opportunities and limitations from the ownership and the purpose as well. And this enables us to set strategy. But what it also does, which also influences strategy, is that these three factors come together in defining our risk appetite. So what risks are we willing to take? What risks should we take? And with that, what actions and behaviours are necessary for achieving this strategy and to be within the risk appetite and to satisfy the ownership, the organisation and the purpose that we have. And this all leads to performance. And the, one of the best ways to both support and to, to control what, what goes into this is to use pay, different ways of paying people to, to get to it. So the internal factors are very, very important. It isn't just a case of that we pay people because we have a, an employer-employee relationship. We're purchasing the service of labor in the market. We also want to achieve certain things with that purchase. And it's very important because it will affect the way we're willing to and should pay people. We then come to the individual. The individual, of course, can't be ignored in this equation. And the individual's performance will impact pay. Uh, so when we're looking at market data, for example, the external, which we'll come to in a second, we do not make judgments about the individual. The, the, the data will consist of people with good performance and poor performance, people who are just into a job and people who have been in the same job for 30 years. The data is completely blind to this. But setting pay is not. The individual and the individual's performance is very important. But it's not always that the individual has just performed. 
many companies will also be careful to set pay according to potential because we're making an investment in our employees. And if we think the employee is going to deliver more and be a real asset to this organization into the future, well, that potential may also attract a premium or a discount if the potential is low in the pay decisions. And finally, the past also matters. It, it is true that you know, companies will try their best to keep pay up to date, but they do not always achieve it, in particular if you don't do regular benchmarking analysis or analysis of how pay is conducted within the organization. And also, the individual will have a past. If the individual has been in a position that was more senior to the one where he or she is now previously, maybe they were expatriated out into to a, a different country and did something amazing there, were brought home into the organization and now have a very different role. Well, the past may impact how you're paid now, even though that m- might mean a, a premium or a discount. Finally, something to highlight is what, what I call the franchise position. Sounds very grand that it's me calling it that. This is a hang-up of mine. The franchise, what that says is that within the negotiating relationship, the transaction of employee accepting remuneration from an employer, an employer offering remuneration to the employee, we have a franchise position dilemma. And that is that sometimes the employee needs the employer more than the employer needs the employee. And sometimes it's the other way around. So if we are hiring someone who has a competence, for example, is a, say a software engineer that knows a, a required software language that we just can't get hold of, we will be in a worse position than the individual who sits with that special knowledge and has a bunch of different companies chasing him or her around. So the franchise position is therefore in the favor of the employee. If the employee is looking for a promotion or is looking to move into a new area or moving from a company that is unknown to a very famous company that's excellent to have on your CV, then the franchise position is the other way around and the employee may well accept lower pay than than uh, would otherwise be the case. And this franchise position is really important when we're looking at markets as well, because the way we position ourselves in a market may need to be very, very different from country to country. So if we are the biggest and best employer within our area in a certain geography, then we will not necessarily need to pay in the middle of the market to attract really talented and excellent individuals. If, however, we say uh, need a software engineer, again, come back to that example, in Japan, and we're an English-speaking organization, uh, then we are competing with fantastic software companies in Japan, like Sony and SoftBank and so on, who uh, can easily attract really excellent Japanese engineers. And we also need to attract someone who is happy to work in English, uh, which, you know, if you're in Japan and want to be a software engineer, you don't necessarily have to do. Uh, You don't, that can just be a hassle. So likelihood is we need to pay more 
because our franchise position is weakened in Japan, even if it is really strong at home. And we then need to consider, of course, where we should be recruiting our software engineers and who we need, and the franchise position should be key to those decisions. Then we come to the external market, the one that everybody blames pale. And the external market is important uh, because we, if we operate in a vacuum and we, we, we just look at ourselves, we will lose touch and we can lose touch very quickly. So we tend to go to surveys and other sources of data. And surveys uh, is where companies go. Employees tend to gather their data from headhunters, from friends in bars, and chat rooms and other public source wherever you can get hold of and you can find uh, there are companies who provide uh, a, the service of people submitting their data and so on and they vary a lot all these what you need to be careful with is what is the purpose and what might be the bias that exists for these different sources of data so a survey for example may be provided by an organization who needs that in order to sell consulting services. Will they be careful enough with the information that goes into it? But of course, the, as we'll get to later, the quality of a survey depends entirely of the quality of the data that it's processing. Not entirely, but mainly. Headhunters uh, or executive search or selection firms they have an incentive, often, not always, but often, to recruit people into organizations whose pay is higher because they get paid as a percentage of the, the individual's remuneration. One needs to consider that. One also needs to consider that headhunters deal with people who are willing to move. And in order to be willing to move, you usually need an incentive to move, which will maybe that you are looking for a premium for wh where you're going. So there tends to be a lot of bias in there. Bars and chat rooms, the bias is clear. Are you trusting people to evaluate their pay correctly in a situation where it might not be ideal to be the person complaining unless you're next to bring in a round of drinks? There is a lot of bias that can come into it. People don't always understand how they're being paid, don't always value every item in how they're being paid. And that is, uh, that is for another podcast, uh, and very important. So be careful with the sources of data. Second thing is geography. Wh who are you comparing with? Different geographies pay very differently. And they don't just pay differently because there are more excellent people in one place and, than in another. Uh, that may affect it. Uh, it may also be because there are employers who are more generous uh, in some locations than others. And there are traditions of how to pay and, uh, and so on. If you look at Norway, for example, the differential between levels in an organization is relatively small. There's, there's not a huge difference between a, a manager and someone who is relatively junior, comparing internationally. If you go to countries like the United States, there is a, a, a tradition of viewing senior people 
uh, with more ore than perhaps you'd find in Europe and and therefore paying them exponentially more in some some circumstances. Lots of different things play in. But most importantly, when it comes to geography, is that we have different tax systems. With the different tax systems, we have different benefit systems. We also have different pension systems are impacted by both taxation practice and different legislation. And that needs to be taken into account when we're comparing. And it gets very difficult to compare. Fundamentally, also, even for the most senior position, there is always a tendency to want to work nearby where you are. People have lives, they have families. If they are willing to move, and this is a mobility podcast, I think, maybe for some time in the future, but if they're willing to move, they're likely to need to convince the whole family to move. And there are all sorts of aspects like that that play in. So the mobility, even on most senior people, is limited. And uh, there needs to be quite a premium to, again, attract people to move from one place to another. So geography tends to be local for, for comparison. Then we have a few other factors that are important for the external market, which we will go into a little bit more depth on. So first is, if you're using a survey, is this survey based on matching or job evaluation? What is the data input that's coming into your survey and has it been manipulated in any way? And finally, what are the samples and statistics that you are working with? First of all, job matching. The thing about surveys is that if we were to compare an individual's job, say I was employed by an organization and the organization wanted to know whether my pay was in line with the market or was really high or really low, or they need to do something with it. What they do is they'd then buy a survey, and they'd go to a survey company, and the company would then either do a job-matching survey or a job-evaluation-based survey, or a mix of the two, and they'd get information on where I was in the market. Given all these other factors we've already discussed of, of the, the individual and how the company uh, thinks and acts around pay. So in analysing the external market, just take me then. So here's Carl, and uh, we compare him and his pay. If you took everybody in the whole world and you found some average on that, it wouldn't be very relevant. So we need to narrow down people who are doing either the same thing or the same sort of seriousness, comparable people in the market. How can we compare them? So the first thing then is to consider job matching. Okay, here's Carl. Here's what he does. Is there a bunch of people who do exactly that? Well. Usually there aren't like 100 people called Carl who do exactly what I do at the same level. So you, you try to narrow it all down. And you begin by saying, okay, so what industry are we looking at? So we define the industry. And then we say, okay, so within the industry, what is the function 
what what exactly do you do within the industry? So say, in my case, a management consultant or an advisor to, to companies, and uh, therefore the function is consulting. Or I was at one point working at Ericsson, Swedish company in, in the telecommunications sector, so that would be the telecommunications sector, human resources. But even that, there are all sorts of people who work in human resources. And then you look at what is the specialization. So the specialization, in my case, back then was compensation and benefits. Uh, still is, pretty much. But if you compare people in the telecommunications industry by function and specialization, and we've already said ideally this should be local in the same geography as your base, what would be the pay? Well, you, well, some people are in charge of it. Some people are brand new out of university working with it. And you may have further specializations within. So we would at least want to try to get some idea also of the seniority. And there we have a sample of people who are within the telecommunications sector, within the HR, doing conversation and benefits. And in my case, I was in charge of it. So be the people who had that specialization, if you like. That would be a very small sample in locations where it's very hard to cut the data into a bucket that is small enough and contains enough data points to make the statistics relevant. We often try to broaden. And one way of broadening is to argue that actually the sector you're in and even your specialization and function, yeah, that might play a part. And in some countries, it plays a huge part. In other countries, it plays virtually no part at all. I'd say in the Nordic countries, for example, it's a relatively small effect from what you do and where you're, where you're working. More what people look at is so-called job evaluation. And what you do there is that you you consider the size and complexity of the position. So you think of, okay, so what's the depth of expertise that you'd need for, for the job? Do you have a very broad role that encompasses a lot of different different things? And therefore, in that sense, it, it adds complexity. Do you have a lot of responsibility, which might, again, add to both the the size and complexity of of your job? How complicated is it? What do you need to to be able to do? And what's the impact that you have in your role? Do you impact the strategy of the organization? Do you impact the people who make the strategy of the organization? How, How do you impact? And from this evaluation exercise, they'll create a score. And that allows companies to compare people with similar complexity across industries and actually even across seniority sometimes. So you may be somewhere in the middle of a very large organization and therefore you do have a broad role, you have quite a lot of responsibility, quite a lot of complexity, but you on in the organizational chart you might not be that high up. Whereas if you're sitting in a in a much smaller organization that doesn't have so much complexity and and uh, maybe doesn't need uh, the same depth of expertise, you can sit f- further up the organization and the size of your job would be similar to the one sitting in the middle of the larger organization, for example. 
So that comparison then can be made also, and you can define your market like that. What is key is that we just know how the data has been put together. So what is the basis? And the most fundamental survey differences are there in whether we have job evaluation as the basis for the matching or whether we're doing it by job matching. It should be said that coming back to job matching, what is very important, particularly with job matching, is that you select who you compare yourself with. So let's look a little bit more at how you compare and what it is you're comparing. First, let's start with the variables. The the variables that we work with are the different compensation elements. And that's what we're going to put statistics together around. The first one is base salary. The base salary is the predicted fixed pay that the individual gets. It's what you expect to get. The beauty of a base salary is its predictability. And that predictability, one, it allows the recipient to feel comfortable that I will always get this as long as I remain employed. But it also allows then the company to have a fixed point from which it can define things like incentive opportunities, your pension contributions, how benefits are calculated. Like if you get life assurance cover, it's often in, in a, uh, defined as a multiple of your base salary. Then you have the variable compensation. And the variable compensation is broadly either short-term or long-term. And in the data collection, you tend to be defined as short-term or long-term. And in the short-term, it's typically variable compensation. So compensation that varies with performance or varies with some other factor. Your annual bonus, your sales incentive, your your profit share, that goes up and down and it does so within the financial year. The long-term incentives, that's incentives that, that, that are paid over more than 12 months. It's incentives for performance or remaining in employment which stretch a long time. It can be cash-based. It can be based, uh, paid with shares. And typical variations of this are stock options, performance share plans, restricted stock, uh, and so on. In the middle, between short-term and long-term incentives, are deferred pay. And this is uh, particularly common in Europe, but you also do get it in other parts of the world, where you take part of say the annual bonus, and you carve it out to pay at a later date. And this can then be treated in different ways. So I'd say most surveys treat it as long-term incentives, but some treat it as short-term incentives since it is a derivative of the short-term performance and short-term pay. And one just needs to be clear on where it sits in the pay mix. Next comes other fixed elements, which are your benefits, your pensions, and other perquisites. So the value of that will also go into the mix as data variables. And all this gets added up into total cash, total compensation, total reward. The total numbers are usually base salary plus the short-term incentive paid. So 
how much did the individual take home during the year from performance during that year. Then it's the total compensation, which is typically your base salary plus your short-term incentives plus your long-term incentives. And then sometimes we also add on the value of pensions and benefits to create the total. What's interesting here is that you will have different combinations around this and the, uh, and items will be treated differently. So the most important one to look out for is that long-term incentives are typically valued. So we look at what is the value of the incentives you were awarded in a year. Just to, to summarize, that valuation is the expectation of what something is worth. Taking into consideration the, the, the type of incentive it is, so an option, for example, is a derivative of a share and therefore not worth the same. And that needs to be valued. So an option may be worth a quarter or a third of a share in evaluation. We may also take height for that if we have introduced performance conditions, that may reduce the value of the, the, the incentive. And when it comes to pensions and benefits, they too can be valued. So they may not have a value which is equivalent to what they cost in a year. If you take a defined benefit pension, for example, which is where the company has made a promise to deliver a certain value in, in, in the future when someone retires, well, then that value now depends on a whole host of factors. And, and you'll find that a company will contribute less to an individual's defined benefit pension early in their career and much more later in the career, but the expected value of each contribution is the same. So this is one of the reasons why, why a lot of survey companies will not include pensions because it's incredibly difficult to value and it's incredibly individual. And key here, again, coming back to our key takeaways, is that you just understand the methodology that has been used and employed in the survey that you are analyzing to, to get information to base decisions on. Then it comes to the data input. So taking these variables, what is it that we're feeding into the system? Well, the first thing is that we may have primary and we may have secondary data. And what does this mean? Well, primary data, that's data that survey company has collected directly from a company or from individuals. So it's data that claims to be absolutely accurate at a certain point in time. And so when survey companies go out to companies to, to get their information, they'll, they'll ask for what was the data at, say, 31st of March or the 31st of December, 1st of January. They'll take a, they'll take a date and they'll say, okay, at that date, what was the information? So what was the rate? at which you were paying a salary, for example. So this, the salary may change during the year. People get promoted. You may have mid-year adjustments. Uh, it may be that you do the salary review later or earlier or whatever it may be. So if we have a reference date, the company submitting the data will know that that's the date where I will say what the salary rate is. And the rate is the equivalent of the annual salary that you earn at that point in time. 
then you may earn more because you get a raise a couple of weeks later. But that's irrelevant. We want to know at a, a comparable date what everybody was paying in order to describe a market. It's a bit like balance sheet. It's at a certain point in time, we take a snapshot, and that's what the picture looks like. Also relevant for bonuses and so on. So if you're collecting annual bonuses, you will want to know what is the rate at that point in time. And there, it tends to be quite a lot of leeway around it because we're more interested in the period for which it was paid than actual payment date, but you, you get the picture. The the beauty of it is that we get absolutely accurate data that is comparable at a certain point in time, or at least that's the principle. Secondary data is when we take information which we get from somewhere else, either we collect it from other surveys and we compile information from several surveys, or more commonly, we take information from published sources, which we can do for executive pay in many countries because there is either a legal or a code requirement that says that companies need to disclose a certain certain positions at least, like the chief executive, and in some places like in North America, you'll find it's the, like the, the top paid people in in the UK, board members and so on, and management board members in other places. So you, you have certain data in the public domain, and therefore you can collect it and you can compare. The issue with the secondary data is, A, you have no way of going back to verify with a, with a company that that was absolutely correct. They got it right. When you're collecting primary data, you can test the data. You can pull the company up and say, this doesn't look right. Have you got this right? For secondary data, you have to rely on someone else having done that. But there are also other aspects to it. So for survey purposes, to understand how much people are paid, we are usually much more interested in what the rates of pay are. So what are the opportunities to be paid? And maybe what did actually happen in terms of certain decisions? From a, a reporting point of view, we are typically seeing reporting of how much was paid out. We're, we're more interested in satisfying the curiosity of journalists than we are of, of um, pay decision makers because people want to see, oh, how much does it actually end up being? In pay terms, we're, uh, when we're designing plans and evaluating levels of pay, we're usually much more keen on defining and comparing opportunities because the actual outcomes there were into how well did it go and all sorts of other factors that, that come into play which aren't necessarily just around pay decisions. It can be interesting. It can be providing us with with data to evaluate how things have gone, but it isn't necessarily uh, as accurate as uh, as primary. Actually on the whole it tends not to be. But data is available, you can compare it, and more importantly, the executives that you're talking to, they will be comparing it because they will be looking up this information, board members will do it. So in the United States, for example, proxy data comparisons are de rigueur. You, 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 you see it all the time, and it's hard to, to have a discussion in the boardroom that isn't around proxy data, but around primary data. So with, 
regard to consistency of implementation. This is really interesting because it's very hard to detect. We, we typically get an inkling from how much our own data is queried. But consistency of implementation is really important because some surveys will accept that companies send in data samples. This is not such a big issue around executive pay, but it is a bit further down the organization. So if, uh, say, an investment bank has uh, 100 managing directors and they send in 10, that may be a representative of them as an organization, but doesn't give the whole market picture, in particular if that is a large bank uh, that that, uh, that is doing it. So for a survey company to do that, it's very important that that is clear. Sometimes uh, survey companies don't collect long-term incentive information because they need to go to other people than the HR people. In certain countries, it's more practice that the legal department sits on long-term incentive information than, than the HR department. There may be separation for all sorts of reasons, for governance reasons. And it may be difficult for the survey company to get to parts of the organization to supply data. And therefore, they allow data to be weaker for some aspects. Very important to keep an eye on uh, and to ensure that there has been consistency in the way that the, the, the data input has been implemented. That companies are using the same and clear guides for how they value incentives who they include, how they value jobs under job evaluation, or how they match their individuals to the job descriptions that the survey company provides. The other thing is methodology bias. Uh, and again, we need to just be careful here. Different survey companies use different methodologies, and there will inevitably always be a certain bias. If we're doing job matching, then the way we do that is by taking a job description within the company and comparing it to a generic job description that the survey company has provided. Now, if the survey company is getting all its information about how this, the industry looks from a certain sample, say, for example, that uh, they survey the oil industry around the world and they look at oil companies everywhere in the same way that they look at oil companies in the Middle East, well, then they'll get a very different data set to if they define how oil companies work in North America, in Europe, like in Norway, in the UK, and in the Far East. There are ways of doing oil that are very different. You, know, you don't need a, a deep-sea diver in the Sahara, and sand is not such a big issue in the North Sea. But you can also get methodology bias in, most of all, how you calculate long-term incentive values or if you calculate pension values, which I alluded to earlier. So if you take just stock options. So stock options, we'll do a separate uh, episode on this, but stock options, that's a right to purchase shares in the future. And stock options can be valued. But it's very hard to do that for every option that is in a data set. And uh, even if you do, you run up against limitations because as soon as you have performance metrics and other constraints on there, it makes it harder to value. There some survey companies, they'll just say, look, this is too complex. 
And it's actually easier for the, the reader of this data if we just do a simple valuation. So what we'll do is we'll assume the value of an option is one-third, say, of the face value, whoever we're looking at. Others will go through the whole valuation methodology, but they'll end up doing different things, different places. And you'll find all sorts of approaches to these valuations. What's most important is not whether that one way is right and one way is wrong. For survey purposes, the most important thing is that you understand what's been done. And then if you don't agree with it, you will take height for it. So you will you'll take that into consideration when you consider uh, the pay levels within your organization. It's just important that you understand how it's all been done. So we have looked at the data variables and how the data is then inputted and some of the issues around this. Just want to touch on some of the concerns around data manipulation. Data manipulation is not necessarily a bad thing. Almost, well, essentially all survey companies will manipulate the data and they need to manipulate the data. The first way that you will very commonly see is so-called aging. The aging is usually found when we're working with primary data. What we do is we make we take a date that we want to do the analysis for and we age the information in the data set. And that can either be done on a sophisticated basis by taking each and every data point and we have a time point for it. So if we say that uh, we're using proxy data and it's supposed to be correct as of the 31st of December then we and we have a 1st of uh, July point that we we are comparing for then we'll take the client data and we'll compare it to data points that we have increased by an aging factor for 6 months so if we say that uh, just roughly speaking the inflation is 2% and or we're expecting wage inflation or, or executive pay inflation to be 2%, then we might increase it by half of that for six to get up to six months. And if we have someone who's reported 31st of March, we might then increase that by roughly half a percent to get to the same point. So that all the data points are at the same time point and we're making a very large assumption that the aging will happen with the same factor in all the companies that we're looking at. Sometimes survey companies will do this with the whole data set and they'll just age the median or age the upper quartile, sometimes with the same percentage, sometimes with different percentages. Key is under, to understand, first of all, whether you want your, the data to have been aged and whether that's a reasonable assumption because you can distort the data as much by aging as if you weren't aging, if you're unlucky. The other thing is, of course, to understand exactly how it was done so that you you are comparing like with like and feel comfortable with, with that manipulation. The other way, which is quite common, uh, is to do some form of correlation exercise. And this is typically done when the data sample is not sufficient. Well, there, there isn't enough data to be specific. And what you then do is you take a broader data set and you extrapolate the equivalent data for the position and the level and so on that you are searching for. 
So you may take, if you're using job evaluation, you may take one or two levels above and include them and one or two levels below and include them. Find a correlation within that sort of gives a representative view for all the levels and find your level and draw it out of this this equation. Correlation is a, is a way of bringing in high data points and low data points and allowing them to to um, to directly influence your information because you could do that. You could just expand the data set and include more senior, more junior. But if you don't have an even distribution, the middle point there will be biased by having higher or lower data points uh, driving driving the averages or medians up. With correlation, you reduce that effect. But you are using some very, very fundamental assumptions around the distribution of your data set and how uh, this correlation actually works. It is effectively a very educated guess given a data sample that isn't quite representative. The other thing is extreme data points. And most will take away extreme data points, mainly on the assumption that they uh, are potentially wrong or that they manipulate the data. So in particular, if you have a small data set, one extreme data point might drive that data in the wrong direction. And therefore, your median or quartile data points may be distorted by the extreme data point. And some uh, survey companies find this uh, particularly distressing if uh, they know that the client is using the the data set for year-on-year comparisons and they're sort of having it uh, as a price list. Now, you should never use data as a price list. Data is an illustration at a certain point in time. But extreme data points can actually uh, be a big negative, in particular if you can't see them and can't, can't uh, judge what their effect is as a reader of the information. So something to be aware of, uh, but rarely uh, something to be uh, very concerned about. It might be a concern if you are the company that is looking to pay the highest, then you probably will expressly want to see either extreme data points. So if you are looking to pay at an extreme level, you will want to know if there are other people doing the same. Then there are representative data points. And representative data points effectively is a manipulation. So if someone is submitting an average of their data, you are not getting the full picture. Sometimes it may, for some, be relevant if you have a if you have a situation where one company is completely dominating a market, you may want to reduce for that. But on the whole, if you're saying that there are a hundred heart surgeons in a market and one hospital is employing seventy five of those there are still 100 heart surgeons in the market. And even if one employer is driving the market and paying 75 of them, it is of value to understand that and understand what what the whole market looks like and to remove particular high-paying, low-paying data from that data set is a distortion. And if you have 
uh, a need to understand the whole market, then then you will not be getting good data. So something to look out for and to ask your data providers for how that has been treated. I hope that you found this interesting and helpful and I also hope that you join me for other episodes of Getting Executive Conversation. My name is Carl Schostrom and thank you for listening. <music>